For decades, hydrogen has been hailed as a critical fuel of the future. A cleaner alternative to the fossil fuels which power heavy industry, our transport and our homes. Hydrogen produced cleanly from renewable sources has never quite realised its potential. But cheaper renewable energy has begun to make green hydrogen production more competitive, particularly as the war in Ukraine has driven the cost of fossil hydrogen higher. So is the hype around hydrogen justified? And what role will it play in powering our clean energy future? Welcome to New Foundations. In this week's episode, our last of the series, we explore the promise of green hydrogen, ask who will make it, how and for what, and what will it take to scale up a green hydrogen-powered economy. This podcast is supported by Pictay Wealth Management, and we thank them for their support. With pride of place atop the periodic table, hydrogen is the lightest, smallest, most abundant element on Earth. It's colourless, odourless and tasteless. Critically, it burns cleanly and is energy dense. Burning a kilogram of it provides 2.6 times more energy than burning a kilogram of natural gas. The only byproduct is water. Hydrogen itself is just a molecule. It is actually the most abundant molecule in our universe. This is Meredith Annex, head of heating and hydrogen at Bloomberg NEF. But in Earth, it's very oftentimes attached to something else. So the most often ways that we find hydrogen on Earth is attached to oxygen as water or attached to some carbons as, um, you know, oil, gas, coal, any of these carbon chains that we're used to seeing. Now, we use a lot of hydrogen today, actually. Um, we use it mostly for its chemical properties. It's a really important input into things like oil refining, fertilizers, methanol, which is a precursor to plastics, those sort of things. Um, so hydrogen today is produced usually from natural gas, sometimes coal, sometimes oil. When you're using natural gas, what you're looking at is usually steam methane reforming, where you're taking the methane, the CH4, and you're separating out the carbon and the hydrogen, resulting in carbon dioxide. So that's gray hydrogen production. It emits a lot of carbon dioxide, but you do get hydrogen out of it. Today, almost all hydrogen production is done by burning fossil fuels. To be a tool in our net zero ambitions, we need to produce it cleanly. But how do we do that? There's a lot of different ways that we could be producing hydrogen that are actually climate neutral. So one option is to add carbon capture and storage to existing processes. That's so-called blue hydrogen. But the one that's really gaining attention today is green hydrogen. And this is a completely different way of making hydrogen. Instead of using fossil fuels and separating out carbon and hydrogen, you're now taking water and separating the hydrogen from the oxygen, creating H2 and O2. So there's no carbon emissions as part of this. The way you do this is using electricity through a machine called an electrolyzer. And as long as those electrons that you're using are low carbon from wind, solar, batteries, um, renewable solutions, then this process end to end doesn't have to emit any carbon. When we look at pure renewable based hydrogen, so green hydrogen today, BNEF estimates that there's going to be around two gigawatts of cumulative installed capacity by the end of this year. And just to put that in perspective, we think the world's on track for about 250-ish gigawatts by uh, 2030. That's just based off of current policy. So this is 
a tiny, tiny fraction of where we're going to be in 2030. And even in 2030, we're only going to be replacing a fraction of total gray hydrogen demand. So this is a really early market, green hydrogen. Hydrogen is actually the most technologically convenient and cost-effective solution to decarbonize a broad swath of industrial sectors that use energy or feedstocks that are carbon-based today. This is Rafi Garabedian, founder and chief executive of Electric Hydrogen, a company that designs and builds low-cost, high-efficiency green hydrogen systems. Solar and wind are cheap enough now that the resulting hydrogen can be and ultimately will be at price parity with fossil resources. That makes the switchover cost from natural gas, coal, oil to hydrogen zero. And really that zero switchover cost point, that's when massive adoption takes place in industrial and infrastructure markets. So back to electric hydrogen, that's what we're trying to achieve, right? We do appreciate and need the subsidies and supports that are being provided into the hydrogen economy today. But our goal ultimately is to be independent of those supports and to create price points that facilitate mass adoption. While it's long been possible to make carbon-neutral hydrogen, it's much more expensive than doing so the dirty way. The infrastructure for producing, transporting and using it is still in its infancy. What will it take to scale up green hydrogen? So challenges and problems for green hydrogen, let's start with us as a company. So we're a tech company. It's what's called hard tech or deep tech now. It's material science, it's engineering. So our day-to-day challenges are actually achieving the performance which is necessary to drive the price points that we believe will unlock this market and allow it to scale. But zooming out from us as a company to the industry writ large, Hydrogen is in its extremely early days. It's in its infancy. Rewind the fossil industry back to when people first started poking holes in the ground looking for natural gas. That's where we are with hydrogen. We're at the very, very beginning of its evolution. And the midstream and downstream, which means the ability to transport the product from where it's created to where it's needed, to store it, and then to utilize it effectively, those have to be developed. And that whole chain of uh, transport and use, that represents a major retooling of a broad swath of industrial infrastructure around the world. And if you think about it, we've been burning stuff we dig out of the ground for more than 100 years uh, in large volumes. And now we're talking about radically changing that fuel source to another molecule that burns beautifully and burns cleanly, but it's different enough that it can't utilize all of the existing infrastructure. So there's a lot of work to do in um, codes and standards and regulation for the transport, storage, and consumption of hydrogen. There's a lot of work to do in the technology to adapt existing infrastructure to be able to carry and utilize the molecule, etc. For Meredith Annex, demand is the biggest challenge. The projects that we see being developed at the moment are vertically integrated or on-site captive facilities. That means that you're producing the green hydrogen exactly where it's being consumed. And you need to have an obvious end user who's coming in and backing your facility and is probably involved with it from the very start. 
one of the biggest dangers with the hype around hydrogen right now is that we assume it's a silver bullet for everything. That's not the right way to think about hydrogen. Hydrogen's a derived product. So you're using something to make it, either electrons or natural gas. And that means that it's both going to be more expensive than whatever you used originally and also less energy efficient because you've gone through multiple steps. So you had the electricity that then made the hydrogen that then is converted to whatever end use you're looking at, steel, transport, power gen. Whereas if you just use the electricity in the first place, you skip out a whole step. So you have fewer losses, you have a smaller total energy system. And that's really passenger vehicles is one of those. If we look at the uh, drive chains for electric vehicles and batteries, these are becoming cheaper and cheaper every day. We do think that fuel cell vehicles in the passenger fleet can become cheaper as well with sufficient policy. They could even become cheaper than diesel in the future, but they will always struggle to compete against electric vehicles. Another area is in home heating. When you look at the efficiencies of a heat pump, for instance, to provide home heating relative to a hydrogen boiler, um, there are some real benefits there. Also, in terms of the amount of adjustments that you need to make the home, we think that they're probably relatively similar. In both cases, you should be doing insulation. In both cases, you're going to need to adjust the appliances in the household. So the argument that hydrogen boilers will be less invasive to a homeowner than a heat pump seems a little optimistic. The potential market for green hydrogen is mind-blowingly large. Rafi Garabedian again. When you think about it in the context of replacing, for example, natural gas as both a source of power and, you know, frankly, the reason natural gas is so interesting is because it's easy to transport, right? And hydrogen can serve that same purpose through other chemical conversions downstream of it. The natural gas industry as a whole, if we were to replace that resource with hydrogen, would represent roughly 10 terawatts of new renewable generation addition and coupled electrolysis. So it is a massive problem, very hard to conceive of how to scale to relevant size quickly enough, but it's also a massive economic opportunity for anybody who's willing to look forward past the fossil era to a clean future. This podcast is supported by Pictet Wealth Management. Cesar Perez-Ruiz, CIO and Head of Investments at Pictet, now gives their view on green hydrogen and the broader challenges of sustainable energy. If we want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, we need to increase production of clean energy such as wind, solar and green hydrogen and speed up the electrification of many aspects of modern society that are currently dependent on fossil fuels. The technology behind hydrogen is already there and in 2022 there are proposals for some 680 large-scale hydrogen projects. That's the equivalent of $240 billion of direct investments through 2030 yet only about 10% of those have reached a final investment decision. There is more capital willing to back production equipment, but we are still lacking scale. Costs have started to come down, but we are still several years from a tipping point. And this means that investors have to take a long-term view. Achieving a more sustainable energy mix will require 
much more public spending in the coming years than was planned initially. But despite all the good intentions, the unfolding energy crisis is setting light on an energy system which is still very reliant on fossil fuels. While there is an accelerating trend in renewables, the pace of investment might not be sufficient to avoid a period of high volatility in energy prices. This, in turn, might lead industries and households to review their energy consumption model. That was Cesar Perez-Ruiz of Pictet Wealth Management. Heavy industry accounts for around 30% of global emissions. Steel production alone accounts for 8% of CO2 emissions, more than three times that of global aviation. These sectors have long seemed irreducibly carbon intensive, with high emissions because the processes involve burning fossil fuels for heat and power, and chemical processes that give off lots of additional carbon dioxide. But here, hydrogen has a promising future. Meredith Annex again. Industry is really where we see the biggest opportunity for hydrogen. And within industry, you've got the obvious ones, but you've also got steel as a new emerging one. Now, coal is cheap today, but by 2050, we think hydrogen-based steel production could be the cheapest source of primary steel production in the world, even cheaper than a blast furnace today. So when you're making steel today, you're using coal in a blast furnace, basic oxygen furnace. When we think about a hydrogen pathway, though, we're talking about a completely different method of steel production. So we're talking about direct reduction electric arc furnace, so DREAF, or sometimes it's called DRI for direct reduced iron. This process uses 75% less energy in total than the coal-based processes that we rely on today. So as the costs of green hydrogen come down, you're going to both have cheaper fuel and less fuel total being consumed. And this can really reduce the cost of primary steel production from hydrogen. Just below the Arctic Circle in the northern coastal city of Lulia in Sweden, steelmaker SSAB is working to develop the first fossil-free steel produced entirely without emissions. So now we are at uh, the hybrid pilot plant facility in Luleå at SSAB's production site. As we see here, it's a very modern, nice... It's a joint effort with other partners under the name Hybrid, and they successfully delivered their first order of green steel to Sweden's largest truck manufacturer in 2021. We will continue to do research for the coming years and to prepare for the industrial scale-up that we are planning to do uh, before 2026. The initiative was the brainchild of Martin Pei, Chief Technical Officer at SSAB. Steel is one of the most important materials we have, which have built the modern society. Without steel, we can't produce electricity, drinking water, communication uh, equipment, all infrastructure airports, railways, tunnels, and buildings, and so on. Steel can also be made by using natural gas, uh, starting from iron ore, in uh, a process called direct reduction, which is uh, different from the blast furnace process. That process produces about 100 million tons of steel a year, but natural gas is a limited resource and is not uh, possible to replace uh, the plasma process worldwide if we everybody goes to natural gas-based process. 
studies show that in the coming decades, we still need to produce quite significant portion of steel from uh, iron ore. And that it becomes the reason why the industry needs to develop a new technology to produce steel from iron ore and eliminate emissions from that process in order to support the mitigation of climate change. How do you expect the overall costs of this kind of production to compare with traditional methods over the longer term? We uh, did quite comprehensive uh, study before we uh, made the decision to invest in this uh, pilot research program in 2017. And in the beginning of 2018, we made the decision to invest in the pilot research program, which is uh, rather costly. We came uh, to the conclusion uh, in 2018, when we did this uh, study, the hybrid route would cost uh, 20 to 30 percent more compared if we would continue with uh, the blast furnace route. So we foresee in the future, at least uh, in certain areas in the world, making steel using fossil-free hydrogen might uh, not be uh, very expensive compared with if we continue with the current process. But in, in the beginning, we believe that this will be a lack of supply of this uh, new way to make steel. So in the, in the initial period, uh, it will be a premium product for uh, this limited amount to be put on the market. But in the long run, we believe that this will be the new way to make steel. Currently, we have, we have delivered a very limited amount for Volvo and some other customers to test this product made in this way. To make it confident that this is the same high quality of steel we can produce, we can deliver also in the future. So we will continue to run research in the pilot plant for the coming years because we are learning a lot. We just announced that we have, we are building up a potent portfolio within the hybrid development company we joined own with LKB Vattenfall. We will continue to do that because these are very important sources of knowledge uh, in our next step, scale up. The hybrid program benefits from novelty and will attract some who are willing to pay a bit more to help bring down their supply chain emissions and for the cachet of using green steel. At this early stage, government support is critical to drive down the costs and scale up applications for green hydrogen. How important is that support to innovation in the sector? Policy and government uh are deeply, deeply intertwined, as you know, into every aspect of energy. Uh, and energy is a primary input to all economy. So, so it's impossible to, to decouple these things. Having, having said that, I am cautious and I have mixed opinions about the roles that governments should play in energy. The policies that are in place around the world today are increasingly supportive of hydrogen and specifically of renewable or green hydrogen production, which is a wonderful thing because those policies, those support structures are absolutely what's necessary to help our industry achieve enough scale to drive down costs to the point where we can be operational at economic price points. Um, but that's the key, right? The key is to get us, us being the industry, broadly speaking, to fossil parity quickly so that the subsidies and supports can be gradually removed. 
Um, the, the risk in government support and policy is that it overdoes it and it sticks around too long and it creates distortions of the economics. So that's where, that's where I have mixed emotions about these things. Meredith Annex again. So we've seen the number of government policies around hydrogen really grow, especially this year. We're now tracking around $120 billion of government money being promised to hydrogen over the next decade. Um, that's huge. This is a massive change compared to where we were a year ago. This is really going to help us achieve scale and learnings within hydrogen that we need in order to get it up uh, and running. Within that, um, it really is a story of Europe and the U.S. when it comes to government spending. The U.S. has the um, Inflation Reduction Act that passed this summer. It has a groundbreaking uh, tax credit for hydrogen that we think will revolutionize the sector there. In Europe, it's a huge landscape of different policies that are both at the European Union and the member state level that are all coming together to provide the answer for hydrogen development. It means the pathway in Europe might take a little bit more time. You have to wait for all of these different policies, all of them running on different schedules to become available to dole out their subsidy and so forth. So that's been a bit of a slowdown for the European industry. And in terms of the companies, genuinely everyone is trying to get involved in hydrogen. You've got your oil majors, you've got your utilities, your pure play renewables developers, chemical companies that are already doing gray hydrogen, even the metals companies um, all entering the space and really trying to play a big role in its future. Hydrogen will play a critical role in our energy future. But how big a role and how it sits alongside other innovations is yet to be seen. So hydrogen has been through these hype cycles before. Um, you know, in our company, we like to point out in the late 1800s, even it was being touted as a fuel for the future. And we've seen this again and again, probably in the 1970s around the oil crisis, the early 1990s, the early noughties, and again today. And the thing that really makes today different is net zero. At no point previously have we been looking to do a full decarbonization of all the areas of our economy. Now, because we're talking about net zero rather than 50% or 80%, no sector can hide. You're going to have to look at everything that we produce, every energy unit that we consume, and how you can achieve decarbonization. That is it for this episode of New Foundations, and indeed the series. You can find out more about the programme, as well as articles and further reading, and all our previous episodes at newfoundations.economist.com. And thanks again to Pictay Wealth Management for their support.